We have been working through uh, our series on identity, and this is a, a series that we uh, have connected to our theme for the whole year. The theme that we've established for the year is what does it mean to live courageously or to have this courageous life and to, to live boldly for this gospel and for all that God has done for us. And so every sermon series that we've worked through throughout the year has been designed to help us better understand how do we live courageously. And, and so the idea of identity, speaking to that theme, really comes from the idea that if you have a lack of assurance in terms of who you are, uh, what God has created you to do, his purpose for your life, where you find meaning, fulfillment, significance, it's going to be hard to find that strength to be courageous, or you're going to be courageous in the wrong things. And so identity is, is instrumental to the idea of living courageously, and that's what we've been focused on for the last several weeks. In fact, just as a quick recap, here's how we began to work through this series on identity. We started by just really wrestling with why do we even wrestle with the question of identity? Why do we ask this question of who am I? What's my purpose in the world? What helped me understand my existence and the reason for my existence? And we used Ecclesiastes through 11 to help answer that question, that God has set eternity in the hearts of mankind. Now, we can't fathom what he's done from beginning to end, as the verse says, but he has set eternity in our hearts. And so our, our longing for meaning, we understand that you find meaning by something that lasts, something that endures. And so when we're looking for meaning and we're finding significance in our life, it's because your heart was designed and has eternity set in its heart. And the reason it has eternity set in your heart is because you were made in the image of the eternal God. And so we, we see that that's where it originates. So that's where we started is, why do we even ask the question? But then we moved into week two to say, well, how does culture typically answer the question of identity? How do we typically try to understand it? And we use Romans 1 and Psalm 139 as a guide. What Romans 1 teaches us is that there is a shift that happens in the human heart where we no longer give thanks to God. We don't acknowledge God. We don't, we don't worship God. But instead, there's an exchange for the truth of God for a lie where we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And the way that we're seeing this play out in our culture today is that there's this kind of renewed emphasis in this uh, distinction between body and soul. Right, and, and so uh, there's a distinction biblically, but in the scriptures we see them beautifully fused together. But in, in our world today, we have this tendency to authorize or elevate the inner voice, the inner self, the soul as being the one that determines all things related to our identity. And so our, our consequence to that is to say that I'm now going to look within myself to answer this question of identity rather than beyond myself. But what Psalm 139 tells us is that God created your inmost being, right? He created that inner self. He created the soul. So you should never look within to find meaning, to find purpose, to find identity. You've got to look beyond. You've got to look back to your creator. And those were the two things we established at the beginning of the series that then took us to Genesis 1 and 2, where we talked about what is the image of God, were the implications of the image of God. The last three weeks, we've talked about the implications for the image of God on worth, uh, self-worth, human dignity as a whole. We looked at its implications on work, purpose, meaning, and then last week on relationships. Okay, so that's where we've gone. Now, let me tell you uh, where we're headed, okay? Because I actually just on Thursday afternoon decided to change how we're going to finish this series. And let me explain to you why. Uh, I usually put my sermon plans together and, and kind of craft out a, a forecast for the year. And that more or less tends to be the direction we go. But I always have uh, the freedom to change it if I feel led to do so. And uh, I knew I was going to speak on identity 
uh, really for quite some time. But then as we got close to this series a couple weeks out, I wasn't, uh, the original plan was not to talk about the image of God. That came about two weeks out uh, from starting the series. And so when I began to focus on the image of God, I just fit it all in the allotted time that I had originally planned. I was like, okay, I got seven Sundays. Here's how we can break it out. And, and the further into it I got, the more I started feeling a little bit of attention and some unease with how we were wrapping this up for a couple of reasons. One was we were not uh, originally going to cover anything related to the fall or the curse in Genesis 3. And, and the more we got into this, the more it felt like that was an injustice to this discussion because those have significant implications on how we understand our identity today and our understanding of the image of God today. And so I was a little uneasy that we were skipping over that. But then this week, when we were originally going to wrap up this series, we we're going to focus on Christ as being the one that redeems and restores the image of God in us. And I was trying to fit all the ways that Jesus does that in one particular sermon. And I felt like I was rushing the most important part, which is what Christ has done. And we need more than one Sunday to explore how Christ restores and redeems the image of God in us. And so I just got to the point where I said, okay, we, we can't finish it this week. We need more time. So we're going to extend this series through October. Uh, today, we're going to look at another component to what we've seen with Genesis 1 and 2 and what's taken place behind the scenes, so to speak, with creation. And then next week, we'll start our journey through the fall, through the curse, and then we'll finish up the last few Sundays in October focused on the way that Christ redeems us in the image of God. Okay, so that's the new plan. That's where we're going. Now, in order for us to get our minds ready for today's uh, discussion and, and how I want us to think about all that was accomplished in Genesis 1 and 2 before we get to the fall and the curse. I want, I want you to think about what do you do when you are stressed out, right? Like when you go through those seasons of life where you're just stressed to the max, you feel like everything's unraveling, you're overwhelmed, everything's busy and hectic and chaotic, and you're just doing everything you can to hold on and persevere and get through. Like what is your outlet? How do you handle Stress. Some people, they turn to exercise, right? Like that's their outlet. They go on a stress run. Uh, that is not me, okay? Running adds stress to my life. It doesn't take stress. I did not get the stress run gene. I got the stress eat gene, okay? That's what I got. So some of us turn to exercise. Others of us, we turn to a pint of ice cream. And, and that's okay too, right? To a certain extent. Uh, can, do I have any other stress eaters out there? Can I get an amen? Yeah, thank you. I know I'm not alone. Right? Uh, so it could be exercise, it could be what you eat. Uh, maybe it's you just want to be out in nature. Right? You go for a walk, you get outside. Maybe you just need some solitude. Uh, you need to take a nap. You need to get by yourself. You need to get away from people. What are the things that you do to kind of alleviate your stress? Well, I think regardless of what you choose, I think one that we can all probably identify as a source of help for, an, for a stress reliever would be music. Right? I mean, music has this unique ability to kind of match whatever emotion you're feeling, right? And kind of meet you in that moment and then give you a way to express that feeling or maybe even speak a word of encouragement to you as you're going through these seasons of being overwhelmed and stressed. So like maybe you're feeling stressed out, you're overwhelmed, and you just need to hear from Avril Lavigne. You know what I mean? Who's just gonna remind you to just, right? Wait for it. Yeah, keep holding on, right? She's just going to encourage you 
with that. Now, maybe you're sitting out there going, I'm not really an Avril Lavigne fan, and I get it, I understand. Maybe you want to go even more old school than that, and you're thinking, you know what, I just would rather get in my car, and I would rather just crank up some Wilson Phillips, right? Because Wilson Phillips is going to for sure inspire me, aren't they? Right? You know, you've been there. Come on, let's listen to it real quick. I see you moving. Everybody start. See, you're already feeling less stressed. Don't sing it out. There you go. Got to hold on, right? Little Wilson Phillips. My wife is going to be so frustrated that she wasn't here for the service that I actually worked Wilson Phillips into the illustration. But, you know, hey, it is what it is. I feel like I should also offer a disclaimer. I don't regularly listen to Avril Lavigne or Wilson Phillips, okay? And I do recognize that by incorporating those two artists into the illustration, everyone under the age of 35 is like, I don't know what these songs are. But it is what it is, okay? The point is, regardless of your stress outlet, whether it's music, whether it's exercise, the message is the same. Keep holding on, right? Hold on for one more day. Figure out a way to persevere and get through. This is something that we have to do when we feel like life feels a little bit overwhelming or is unraveling. Here's the point. Okay, the reason I bring that up to your attention today is because when we look at the image of God and identity, there are going to be times where we feel like it's beyond our grasp. Right? There are going to be times where we feel like what we've read about being made in the image of God is, is, is an ideal that is unattainable and that we're just feeling like everything is coming apart. We're feeling like we, we can't meet that ideal. And so what is it that's going to help you persevere? What, what is going to help you navigate those, those needs to hold on? And what the gospel teaches us is a different song. See, like what culture tells us is that you've got to have that strength. You've got to find it within you to, to have that endurance, that ability to hold on. But what the gospel teaches you, it's not what you are holding on to, but what's holding on to you. And that's what we get a chance to look at today. We're going to do so by being in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 serves as a great complement to Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, we're actually going to take a break from being in Genesis because what we see in the creation of the world, the creation of mankind, is this incredible artistry of God. And in this incredible work of God. But what Colossians 1 and 2 does for us, or really chapter 1 and a few verses we're going to look at today, is, is give a whole other level of meaning to what's taken place through creation. And the way in which it shows us that, that all things are being held together, in particular through Christ. And so we're going to be looking in verses 15 through 17 today, and we're just going to work through it a little bit at a time. And so if you want to follow along with me, Let's take a look at chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It says, The sun is the image of the invisible God. Let me stop right there, okay? We're going to just break these verses down this morning, okay? Uh, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Uh, the first thing that I want to accentuate here in this opening verse is the idea that Jesus Christ is referred to as the sun, now, that may not sound too illuminating to you, and I recognize that that's a common phrase to be attributed to Jesus, but I want us to stop and reflect upon the significance, right? That the way in which God reveals the relationship between him and his son, the, the way that he reveals his triune nature is to use terminology of father and son. Matthew 3.17, right? Matthew 3.17, at the baptism of Jesus, right? We have a voice from heaven that speaks this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
right? You have this declaration of a father loving a son, and repeatedly throughout Jesus' ministry, he refers to God as his father. Now, the reason I want to highlight that for us this morning is because last week we talked about the implications that the image of God has on relationships, specifically the creation of of marriage, the creation of this relationship between husband and wife that becomes the foundation for the relationship of family, right? That God has created these intimate relationships where the, where the world is now filled with meaning with these sort of familial terms like father and son, right? Or even if it's husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, those, those words, that language awakens your heart to love. And so when we see just even that simple designation of how the triune God describes himself as father and son, it's awakening us to the depths of love from God the Father for his children. Okay, so the son is the image of the invisible God. Let's talk about the invisible God first, okay? Uh, The invisible nature of God. I'm curious if any of this bothers you that God is invisible. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever just wish... He would show up, right, and just prove it all right there. Do you ever find yourself thinking that way or wishing? I know I have before in my life. I think sometimes we struggle with the invisible nature of God because in our society, we put a strong emphasis on the idea that seeing is believing, right, until I see it with my own eyes, right, and we kind of reserve a certain level of skepticism and and unsure um, beliefs or convictions until we can verify it through sight. That's an interesting contrast to the ancient Hebrew culture that put a tremendous amount of weight in hearing, right, to verify that which was true. They, they established their beliefs based on what was heard, which makes sense when you look at the origins of their people, that everything was really built upon the word of God speaking to them and them hearing from God. But you and I, we tend to value sight. And so the idea that God is invisible can be somewhat problematic. Now, their only reason, though, that it should be concerning even though it doesn't come without certain challenges, the only time it should actually be concerning is if we also thought that God wanted to hide himself. The truth is, is that though he's invisible, our God is a God of revelation. He is constantly seeking to reveal himself, right? Throughout the pages of scripture, he wants to be known, whether that's the audible word that he speaks to his people, a burning bush, a whale, his son, the word, whatever it is, he is constantly revealing himself. And so though he may be invisible in nature, we can know that he is knowable and has constantly revealed himself. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20, to verify this. We looked at this earlier, well, a couple years ago. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Right? God has revealed his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature through that which has been made. He is a God of revelation. So here's where I want to ask one of the first questions this morning. How is God revealing himself to you in this season of your life? How would would you answer that? Sometimes we go through seasons, and some of you are probably in these seasons, where it's like God just keeps showing up. 
It's like he won't leave you alone. He's like he's there at the grocery store. He's there at home. He's there in a conversation with the neighbor. He's there with something on the radio. Like it's just nonstop. And you find yourself in this season where God is constantly revealing himself to you. And if you're in that season, I would encourage you this morning, just give praise to him. Right? Don't, don't run past the fact that he wants to be known by you and how special that is, how incredible that is, and give celebration to that fact this morning. But we can also all recognize that many of us have gone through seasons where the opposite feels true, where it feels like God is distant, where it feels like God is um, hidden from us, that he's almost intentionally trying to hide himself from us, and we find ourselves crying out, where are you, God? And many of us find ourselves in those seasons as well. So what do you do when you're in that season? How do you navigate it? What I would encourage you is that if that is you today, if you're in a season like that, I would tell you to rest in that which is knowable, right? Rest in the fact that God truly has revealed himself. He's made it clear through that which has been made. This may sound silly, but literally go outside and just marvel at what has been made. Take in a sunset. Find some time to to gaze at the stars and, and recognize the beauty of what has been made. Spend some time looking at the word and just reading the gospels, seeing that he has revealed himself through Christ, which is what this verse is ultimately drawing you to, that though he is invisible, he has revealed himself through his son. The son is the image of the invisible God. Hey, I want to use Hebrews chapter 1 to complement this journey through Colossians today. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, first part of chapter, uh, verse 2, say it like this. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. When we see that Christ is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is God's definitive declaration that he is speaking to you. He is revealing himself to you fully through his son who is the image of the invisible God, right? And so this idea of image is, is really remarkable. It's, it's the Greek word icon, which should sound somewhat familiar, and it carries two different sort of connotations in this particular passage, right? One, one idea is the idea of likeness, okay? So that Jesus is made in the likeness of God, and that should sound somewhat familiar because we've been talking about this throughout the course of our journey through Genesis 1 and 2 and all of humanity. We are made in the image of God. We are made in his likeness. And so when we see that Jesus is in the image of God, that should once again affirm the unique characteristics uh, that he carries with God, but also should remind us of his humanity, right? That just as man and woman was made in the image of God, Jesus is made in the image of God, but Jesus is different, obviously, Right? Because the other aspect of what we're seeing here in Colossians and this idea of being made in the image is not just likeness, but a manifestation of God's power, a manifestation of God's glory uh, that is unparalleled than anyone else. In fact, what Colossians 1 is emphasizing is that this image, this icon, so to speak, has an equal quality with the original. Right? That, that Jesus is not just fully human, he's fully divine. So that when we see Jesus... We see God, right? In fact, Jesus himself says this to his disciples. In John 14, 9, he says, if you, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Y'all, that's incredible, right? He is the image of the invisible God. If you wrestle with, 
God's ability to reveal himself to you, if you're looking for him to, to show you who he is and what he is like, look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The verse continues, not only is he the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, what do we mean by firstborn over all creation? Uh, the word for firstborn here uh, tends to represent either priority in time or supremacy in rank, and sometimes both. Like in this passage, it actually carries both meanings. So priority in time simply means that which came first. It was the firstborn, right? And so when it says firstborn over all creation, that is essentially saying that Jesus was before everything that was made. Right, and that should resonate with some things that we see like in John's gospel, John chapter one, that tells us in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God, right? So, so we can see consistently throughout scripture that Jesus was there before anything was made, right? He is the firstborn over all creation. Yet similarly, it's not just priority in time, it's supremacy in rank, right? Um, you, you can see this play itself out on uh, repeated stories throughout the Old Testament that the firstborn had a greater rank than the rest of the children, right? They, they had a certain responsibility. They had a certain authority than anyone else had. And so when you see firstborn, it carries that supremacy and rank. And so what's also being emphasized here is that Jesus has the supremacy over all that has been made, right? He has the supremacy over all of creation, which leads me to my second question for you this morning. I don't want you just asking, how is God revealing himself to you today and in this season of life? I want you to ask, is the supremacy of Christ evident in your life? Like, does your life demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus? Right? Because this is, this is central to understanding our identity. Understanding who we are begins and ends with our ability to acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus in our life. And this is why when we have a baptism, like we did today, one of the consistent um, rhythms to any sort of baptism is to exchange that, that declaration with one another. What is your profession of faith? Jesus is Lord. That's what we're celebrating. The supremacy of Christ being acknowledged in the life of a brother or sister. Is it acknowledged in your life this morning? And nothing else in all of creation should have greater rank or supremacy than Jesus. He is the firstborn over all creation. Okay, let's keep going. Here's why he has that supremacy. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Let's start our discussion here on this verse with the reference to all things, right? Notice the, the uh, broad sweeping categories that are utilized here to demonstrate the expanse, the extension of the supremacy of Christ, right? It's, it's heaven or earth, visible or invisible, throne, uh, power, ruler, authority. It is a comprehensive declaration of the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme over all things, everything that was created. And so the point that I want us to reflect upon this morning is to recognize is that there is not a portion of this earth that falls beyond the bounds of the supremacy of Christ. 
There's not a, a corner of this earth that escapes his notice or doesn't fall under his rule or reign. And it doesn't even just stop at this earth. All that has been made, all that has been made falls under his supremacy. Now, I don't know the last time that you've marveled at the expanse of space. Now, whenever I really kind of dive into that, it's overwhelming to me. It's incredibly humbling. It's, it's actually somewhat terrifying in a, in a good way. When you begin to see just how expansive the universe really is, right? And you begin to consider like galaxies and planets and begin to realize that all of that falls under his supremacy, right? There is not a corner of this earth, not a corner of creation that falls beyond him. He's over all of it including you. And so if you find yourself in moments where you go, I, I think I'm forgotten, I think he doesn't see me, I think I've been neglected or I've escaped his notice, be reminded of the words of the psalmist, Psalm 139, that says, even if you go to the heights, he is there. If you make your bed in the depths, he is there. Nothing escapes his attention, nothing escapes his notice, all things have been created in him, through him, and for him. Those are the three prepositions that we find here in verse 16, and they carry a tremendous amount of beauty and significance. The idea of being created in Christ, right? So, so I hope you're working with this, uh, through this with me, right? When we're reading Genesis 1 and 2, and we're thinking about day 1, Day two, day three, day four, and, and sun and moon and stars and creatures of the land, creatures of the, all of it is happening with Jesus right there. Everything being made in, through, and for him. The idea of being made in Jesus speaks to the originating power that exists with Christ. Like he is the cause. He, he is the center of it all. It all originates from him. Everything is made in Jesus. Right? But it's also made through him. He is the mediating agent through which all of this occurs. Hebrews continues in its explanation and reiterates this point as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the second part of verse 2, says, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. There's the reference to all things again. And through him also he made the universe. Now this is a cosmic mystery that I know is hard for our minds to grasp, but I want us to consider it this morning. And the way that my brain thinks about the through aspect of it is that if Jesus, the triune God, if everything is made in him and then through him, that when God is speaking the world into existence and he, he's saying, let there be light, the mediating agent that is bringing that into some form of reality is Jesus Christ. It's the triune God. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. Everything is made in him and through him, but perhaps the most important one for our understanding of our identity, everything is made for him. That's, that's remarkable, right? Everything has been made for him. So part of what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is not plan B. Like the reason I wanted to stop and read Colossians 1 before we get to the fall and before we get to the curse 
is because it's very important that before any of that happens, he was there. Like it was, it was already for him. It was not like we had the fall, we had the curse, and God was like, oh, what are we going to do now? No, I'll send, create a son and I'll send him. From the very beginning, things were created in him, through him, and for him. The anchor of your identity is understanding that the reason for your existence is that you were made for Christ. You were made for his glory. He is the end to which all things in creation should be moving. He is the purpose. Let me try to to land the plane with some applicable references for this, okay? Um, Your spouse was not created for you. Now, sometimes we want that to be the case, and we think that to be the case, right? And we look to them to meet certain needs and to achieve certain expectations. But your spouse was not created for you. And you were not created for your spouse. Now, culture is going to try to tell you that that's not at all what love is, that love is all about you finding your soulmate and being able to find that perfect person that completes me, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's not why you were created. They weren't created for you, and you weren't created for them. They were created for Jesus. And where your relationship begins to flourish is when you acknowledge that in one another. And you see that God has brought you together so that you can help them discover how they were made for Christ, and they for you. And the more that you experience that with one another, the more you discover your identity, your purpose, your meaning. You're made for Jesus. Your children, they're not for you. Yes, they, they carry your likeness. They are gifts some days. Right, like incredible blessings. But, but hear me, they're not for you. They were created for Jesus. They were entrusted into your care so that you could help them flourish by understanding that they were made for Christ. Let me give you another one. Your enemies, right? Like the people that you want to um, categorize and, and see with hate, the ones that you see with disdain, the ones that have wronged you, the ones that have hurt you, the ones that have manipulated you, caused all sorts of wounds, like what the devil wants you to do is to, to see them as less than or to avoid them and to think that they're, they're not important or insignificant. But what the gospel teaches you is that even they were made for Christ. And that you have been positioned in their life, even if it's been through pain or trial or difficulty, to maybe demonstrate grace, to demonstrate forgiveness so that they can be awakened to the idea that they were made for Jesus. People that are broken, people that you want to drive by, people that you want to count as the other, people that you want to ignore, they were made for Jesus. It goes on and on and on. We were made for Christ. And we have to acknowledge that in ourselves and one another. That is instrumental to our identity. And the reason we can say that and the reason we we see that all begin to come together is in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, and so what we find Paul emphasizing here is, again, this this priority in time. He was before it all, right? This was not plan B. This was the very 
beginning. This was the intent. Everything was created and designed to be for Jesus. He's before all things. And then here is the beautiful message for us this morning. And in him, all things hold together. So think about that, right? Think about the implications of such a promise, of such a word, that in him all things hold together. Hebrews um, emphasizes this, this same idea again. Let's finish Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, to bring this point home. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what gets you through, right? That's the question that we presented this with this morning. What, what is it that allows you to persevere and endure and to get through all these difficult situations and circumstances and situations that occur um, sometimes that you can see coming, sometimes that you can't? What is it that's going to give you that what sustains you? It's him. Right? All things are held together by him. And I think this speaks to uh, an important aspect of how we go through life. Because God can be a really easy scapegoat at times, right? Like, we can make him the cause of all of it. So when we go through trial, when we go through difficulty, when we go through heartache and pain, we can say, well, that was all God's fault. Why, why would God let that happen? And we make him the source and the reason for all the unraveling. And that's convenient, isn't it? It's actually pretty easy to do it that way. Right? Because that allows us to just reposition ourselves to have the authority that we want to make sense of the world according to our plans, our, our expectations, our understanding of right and wrong. If I can just eliminate God from the equation, I can look within to find all that I need for my identity. And so if I go through a stressful season, if I go through a chaotic season and everything begins to unravel and none of it begins to make sense and I begin to see all these different expressions of how people are falling short of the image of God, well, I can just put God as the reason for it. Why would he create a world like this? Why would he create a world with suffering and pain? Why would he create all these different things to happen? And we would see that God's the cause for the unraveling. That's the easy way. The shift in perspective and what the gospel teaches us is that the world is broken. Right? And when we look within and we, we fall short in our own way and we make our own mistakes and the world is filled with people making mistakes, it's filled with a world that's longing to be set free, what we could actually see is that it's not that everything is unraveling because of God, but that the only thing that's actually keeping it and holding it together is Him. He's the only one sustaining us and getting us through it, strengthening us accordingly. He is the sustainer of all things, the author in Hebrews says. In him, all things hold together. And that's where we begin to see the brilliance and the beauty of this gospel. See, too many times we go through life, and especially with our faith, thinking that it's all about our ability, right? That if I would just read more, if I would just do more and pray more and serve more, if I could just have all these different things, then maybe I would find a little bit more fulfillment. I'd be able to have a little bit of a stronger faith and all these different things. And it's all about what we can do. And we try to strengthen ourselves so that we can hold on as tightly as possible. But the good news of the gospel shows us it's not what you're holding on to, it's what's holding on to you. That 
the creator of all from the very beginning when he breathed life into your lungs and brought you into existence, did it in, through, and for the Son. And in that, you have this incredible worth, this incredible value, this incredible significance that is not established by yourself but is gifted to you from your Creator. And because of His love for you, His overwhelming, all-consuming love, He sees you in this broken state. He sees you falling short of what was intended. And he takes on flesh and he dwells among us through the person of Jesus who shows us how that image of God can be reclaimed and redeemed and restored. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we discover that he is holding all things together. And so here's how we're going to respond this morning. I'm going to ask that you just would assume a posture of prayer for a moment. I just want you to close your eyes. And I want you to ask, first and foremost, in the quietness of your heart, for God to reveal himself to you. To speak to you through the power of his spirit. And then I want you to take some time to acknowledge the supremacy that he holds in your life and in all creation. And I believe there might be a few of us here this morning who have never really taken the time to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in our life, have never taken the time to acknowledge the lordship that Jesus has over us. And if that's you this morning, I want you to embrace that moment and if the Spirit is stirring within you and is revealing himself to you and you feel that God is revealing his love and his plan and his purpose for you, I want you to take some time here in a moment, whether it's this present moment or in just a few minutes, and I want you to pray to the Lord. I want you to pray to God and ask him to reveal himself, confess your need for him, and declare to him that you see him as Lord and surrender your life to him. Make that decision to follow him. And if the Lord is prompting that in you this morning and stirring that in you this morning and you decide to pray and make that sort of a decision, then the next step is for you to tell someone, tell a family member, tell a friend, tell someone here at the church. Follow through with baptism like we saw Colin do this morning. Let the world know your story, that you're uniting yourself with Jesus' death and his resurrection, that he would use you to reveal his glory. And after you've taken those steps, all of us, whether we've acknowledged the supremacy of Christ in our life recently for the first time, or if it's something that we've acknowledged for many, many years, where all of us respond this morning, is that we commit our lives to every single day, day after day after day. We start each day in a moment of prayer, in a posture of surrender. And we would come before our creator and acknowledge that we were created in him and through him and for him. And that he is holding all things together through his love, through his power, his strength 
And acknowledging that, may we day after day come before him and cry out, Christ, be magnified in me. Be magnified in us. Be magnified in the church. Be magnified amongst every tongue, tribe, and nation. Because we recognize that our identity rests fully and solely in him and him alone. Father, we love you. And we do come before you confessing once again our need for you. Celebrating once again the way that you remind us of your love through symbols like baptism and the Lord's Supper, through the teaching of your word, through the prompting of your spirit, the way that you stir our hearts towards a greater sense of worship. And God, we would ask that this morning we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We would worship you fully. God, that we would be able to to respond to uh, the way that you reveal yourself to us by declaring to one another and within our own hearts and declaring to you that you are the Lord of our life, that we would recognize that we were created simply for you. And having acknowledged that supremacy, having acknowledged that lordship, God, that our lives would be filled with a daily surrender that makes ourselves available for Jesus to be magnified within us, to be magnified through us, through our words, through our speech, through our conduct, through our thoughts, through our marriages, through our parenting, through our submission to our our mothers and fathers, through our relationships at school, through work, through our neighborhoods, that everywhere you lead us, God, with every step, you would be magnified in us. Because we see it's all for you. And when it feels like it's unraveling, when it feels like it's beyond our control, God, may we return to the table, may we return to the cross and the empty tomb and see that you are sustaining all things. You're holding all things together. And we would respond with joyful praise and unending worship to our God and our King. God, we love you. May the voices of your people this morning fill this room with the praise that you so richly deserve. When we sing out, our hearts would be lifted to heaven. And your Son, the image of the invisible God, would be glorified and exalted forevermore. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.